This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in, wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And more than ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. You know, sometimes kind of there's one story, you think, oh, how do we make sense of this one? And then another one erupts and so on. And if it's okay with all of you, um, I'm going to look at three kind of things that have happened since we last gathered together. Um, not necessarily in this order. Uh, one, uh, the arrest of Nicola Sturgeon, released without charge. Uh, the latest twists and turns of the never-ending Johnson saga uh, and try to look at the wider implications, not just the ego of this figure. Uh, and also, uh, because it does have wider implications, the uh, shift in policy from Labour via uh, Rachel Reeves in terms of their commitment to borrow £28 billion for their so-called green recovery package. And in a way, given that other events that we'll be exploring make arguably a Labour government more likely, that is a really important dimension that we need to make sense of. So a huge amount to cram in, then some questions from you. And uh, before all of that, just uh, one notice this week, which is to thank those of you who subscribe on uh, Patreon. It's via that that um, I'm sitting here in a beautiful studio, Podmasters studio, with the brilliant Simon Williams producing. Um, he's been fantastic, a relatively new recruit to Podmasters. Terrific. Anyway, it's via you that all this becomes possible. And if you do subscribe, I was looking through it. Um, you get, amongst many other things, like the podcast early without the ads and stuff, uh, bonus series. Um, and I'm about to complete the most recent series, which is on troublemakers in British politics. And in that series, uh, there are assessments of Tony Benn, Nigel Farage, Enoch Powell, uh, and, and others. And the final one, which will be coming in the next few days, is uh, one of your suggestions suggestions, uh, Robin Cook. Um, I hesitated about this because Robin Cook was a brilliant but complex politician. On one level, he was the opposite of a troublemaker. Um, he tried desperately hard to be close to various Labour leaders and loyal to them, but he could never quite wholly do so. And uh, in relation to Iraq in epic ways, but in other ways too, he was trouble for Tony Blair. Um, it was uh, that resignation, an act of uh, insight and courage uh, that merits, I think, further exploration. And it's one of my great regrets. I was asked to write uh, Robin Cook's uh, biography and have available 
access to everything. It would have been a sort of authorised one. And for various reasons, I didn't. And in some ways, I regret it because he is interesting. Anyway, that will be on Patreon. But then um, I asked the uh, experts at Podmasters whether all the series are together in one place. And they are. If you go to Patreon Extras Filter, uh, you get all the series, general elections, uh, the underexplored ones, February 74, 2017. And then there's a series on prime ministers and their relationship with special advisors, uh, you know, from Johnson and uh, his uh, friend Dominic Cummings, as was Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair, David Cameron, Steve Hilton tells us a lot about prime ministers as well as the special advisors. There's a series on government cock-ups, the Suez crisis, the poll tax. Were they really cock-ups is one of the themes explored there. But anyway, the next one you're getting is um, uh, the final one in the Troublemaker series, Robin Cook, and it will be with you in the next few days. And thank you to some of the subscribers. I'm going to name check gradually you all. Uh, Vanessa Rowland, Thomas Davis, Angus Thomas, Simon Brunskill. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you for subscribing. Name some more at the end as well. Now, where do we start? Let's begin, if it's okay with you, with the uh, Boris Johnson saga, because um, I think it has, there's been a huge amount of noise um, in recent days, um, but I think we need a bit of clarity, a bit of time to make sense of it all. And it seems to me there are two hugely significant elements of this story. One is the report by the Privileges Select Committee, which by the time you hear this, you might have had the chance to read yourself. What I know as I speak now is that it is clearly damning because if there were any elements of that report for Boris Johnson to have clung to, he would have clung to them. Um, and that is a moment that should not be lost amongst the noise and the accusations from Johnson of a kangaroo court. This is a committee with a majority of Conservative MPs. It's a committee where the original chairman, Chris Bryant, withdrew because he had made critical comments of Johnson. They take their task deadly seriously. Um, and it has found that Johnson deliberately misled the Commons. Uh, because I can say that with confidence, because if it hadn't found that out, we wouldn't have had the shouting outrage of that Johnson statement. So this is a moment to record. Remember what uh, the allegation is, uh, that Boris Johnson chose to deliberately mislead over parties in number 10, uh, which challenged, violated, broke the rules that he himself had set in the biggest national emergency since 1945. There can be no bigger fall than that, it seems to me. And Johnson, on one level, recognises the nature of the fall. Because remember, the committee cannot of itself suspend Johnson and, and trigger a by-election. Johnson had the right to put his case to the House of Commons, and it was the House of Commons who would decide. And remember, the House of Commons uh, is with a Conservative majority of nearly 80. 
And uh, that was a majority created by Johnson as he is tormented by uh, in December 2019. And he clearly thinks uh, that he has not got the ammunition to win round the Commons in what would have been a Churchillian moment of theatre if he had done so, and his hero is Churchill in his uh, fantasy mind. Um, so we mustn't lose sight of that, uh, a condemning verdict uh, and a prime minister, in effect, having to go uh, because of that conclusion. But here is the other twist. By announcing that he was going, Johnson made the focus on him in a whole variety of ways, which had little to do with the committee report. Such is the obsession with Johnson in the media, and such is the devotion to him in some newspapers. Uh, there was an editorial in the Mail on Sunday at the weekend that was utterly preposterous, to the point where I wondered whether it lost any of its propagandizing potency um, in its kind of elevation of Johnson and its dismissal of those who had dared to challenge this titan as they see it. Um, but because of this obsession, uh, there has been endless speculation about what Johnson would do next whether he would be back, whether um, he represented a near-fatal threat to Sunak. And again, I think, lost in the noise, the speculation of where this vindictive character will strike next and so on. In the same way we've lost the significance of the verdict of that select committee, I think we have lost the significance of the fact that Johnson is out of the House of Commons and no longer an MP. Now, I think us lot in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative are not like that. We are in a very privileged position because if you remember, last week in the podcast, I posed the question, can the Conservatives recover while Boris Johnson remains an MP? Because in the House of Commons, he uh, personified trouble at every junction uh, and uh, was causing trouble when that podcast went out um, over what material would be given to the committee into the COVID inquiry, which incidentally, judging by the kinds of things that inquiry wants to look into, is going to be another damning verdict on Johnson. They're already asking him why he didn't attend those early COBRA committee meetings called knowing that the pandemic COVID was raging its way across Europe towards Britain. And he was in Chequers, apparently writing his Shakespeare book and sorting out his final details of his divorce or whatever. Um, and so there's that still to come. But uh, while he was in the House of Commons, he had a platform to cause trouble. He was a Tory MP, visibly liaising with others. His small but not uh, but quite noisy uh, coterie of fellow MPs, and he's no longer there. So the question I posed in that podcast no longer applies. He is not an MP now. I'm told he is still uh, a figure of unyielding ambition, and that is not 
surprising. But outside the commons, even with someone who has the obsessive media following that he does, and who is still apparently revered by a significant part of the Tory party membership, um, I think being outside the House of Commons makes him much less of a threat to Sunak and his party. There's something that happens when people leave the House of Commons that reduces them as a political force. And so it should, by the way, because we are talking about Britain's uh, national elected chamber, the UK-wide one. Um, we'll come to Scotland in a minute. And therefore, it is quite right that for people to be politically potent, they should be in there. And when they cease to be, as Johnson recognised, um, they are much less of a political force. I suspect he will be. He will attempt to cause trouble. He may well try and get a seat. And who knows, perhaps he'll come back and then we'll see what the situation is. But for now, there he is, burdened by a damning report on what he said to the House of Commons. The COVID inquiry proceeding critically. And... Um, he has left without having the guts to fight a by-election or to put his case in the House of Commons. So the fact that he is diminished um, makes him, in my view, much less of a force. And it's why, of course, Johnson stayed on, because he wanted to come back. Um, other prime ministers who leave number 10 with the intention of earning a fortune leave the Commons right away. All ambition spent in that respect. Tony Blair, of course, famously went the day he uh, left number 10. Uh, he left the House of Commons. Um, no intention of putting in the register of MPs' interests all his earnings. Uh, the same with Cameron. He went very soon afterwards. Uh, he knew he was never going to come back as a prime minister. I think, by the way, Tony Blair did go through a brief fantasy period where he dared to hope he might come back. Um, and so did Margaret Thatcher, I think. But on the whole, those who want to earn a ton of money go. Johnson didn't go, even though he knew he was about to earn a fortune on that after-dinner speaking circuit, which he can do with his eyes closed. Uh, I do wonder whether his decision to pull out and make that the story rather than the select committee story and trying to fight... Uh, that was part of his calculation, that the after-dinner invitations might dry up a bit if this report hangs over him and he loses a by-election, having been humiliatingly forced to call it. Who knows? But uh, he knew he had to stay there to be a force, and he decided to stay there. Now he's gone, not because he wanted to go like Blair and Cameron did. He's, in effect, been forced out. Now, that, I think, in the end, at the margins, is good news for Sunak. But obviously, the wider picture, and the electorate will only notice the wider picture, is of a party that's deeply disturbed. And the by-elections will, again, probably reinforce the scale of the crisis. Because if the Tories do poorly in those by-elections and the opinion polls suggest they will do poorly, um, they, that feeds on itself. You get 
Tory MPs thinking, what the heck can we do? Um, we're going to lose our seats. Uh, you'll have Johnson in the background say, well, when I was there, you know, I won it at landslide in December 2019. Uh, fueling it, but remember, from outside the House of Commons, it will be an interview on GB News or Talk TV or something. Um, and that too will lead to a very wobbly summer and build up to the party conferences, which will probably be the pre-election party conferences. And disturbed parties, parties which are seen as disturbed, are always in trouble in terms of electoral prospects, but even more so after four terms in power. And it's quite hard for Rishi Sunak to say, um, give us uh, uh, another term. Here we are with a clear sense of purpose and all the rest of it, with all this darkness around him. And we haven't incidentally even got on to the honours list, uh, which fortunately, I think, for Johnson and indeed his party, um, if he is still tribally connected to this party that he is causing such trouble for. Um, these things tend to get noticed too. Uh, it was fascinating watching the decline of Harold Wilson's reputation after he resigned as Prime Minister. And part of that decline can be explained by his resignation honours list, that so-called lavender list written on lavender notepaper uh, by his uh, close confidant, Marcia Williams. Uh, that list contained people who were going to end up in jail and all the rest of it, business associates. And it played a big part in Wilson's unfair decline in reputation to the point that by, uh, well, really, frankly, the late 70s, he, he left in 76, he was almost being airbrushed out of Labour's history having been the dominant figure in the 60s and 70s. And it was hugely unfair. And he's only now enjoying a kind of partial rehabilitation. Here is someone who ruled Britain between 64 and 70 and 74 to 76, and then graciously chose the moment of his own resignation, far, far removed from Johnson. But I think when all the dust has settled over all the other furores, that list uh, will also diminish further, if it's possible to do so, Johnson's reputation and in, in the eyes of some of his admirers in the, those red wall seats who will see these wealthy friends and others getting awards from someone who was forced out of power in disgrace. So even though I think Sunak will find life easier with Johnson out of the commons than in the commons, there's too much around of a party, a tired party, fighting each other in kind of noisy factions uh, for him to see a smooth path ahead, which obviously is good news for Keir Starmer's Labour, as is for now the state of the SNP in Scotland. There they were, the mighty SNP. Uh, and the mighty Nicola Sturgeon. I do a show at the Edinburgh Festival each summer. And I remember opening the show. It's a different show each day. And I'm going to be there this year as well from Sunday, August the 13th, for all the way through, a different show every day. And anyway, last August, I always started by saying, uh, it was the first one I'd done since the pandemic, 
you know, well, where are we now? You know, the last time I was here, uh, Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the opposition, Boris Johnson was prime minister, um, and so on. Uh, and, and they've all gone. Uh, but Nicola Sturgeon is always still there. Well, I won't be able to say that this August. Um, and uh, there we had the drama of her arrest and then a very powerful personal statement in response of that insisting on her innocence. But it presents trouble. And as I said, in the same way as the turmoil in the Tory party creates a perception of a force that is going through a trauma. And it's very hard then to give a sense of purpose and vision for the future. And so it is with the SNP, which had this great sense of galvanizing purpose. Uh, and now there's this internal trauma. And again, clearly, that's good news for Labour. God knows where that police investigation will go or end up. Uh, but for now, a force that had a kind of self-confident swagger, even though, by the way, its ultimate goal of independence appears to and appeared to have been as far away as ever. I think that was part of the calculation when Nicola Sturgeon went. She wasn't at all clear what the path would be. In fairness to her, it is not clear what the path is towards independence. But anyway, that was, of course, a galvanizing purpose, a sense of hope. And for now, inevitably, they have turned inwards and voters will take note. And Labour, who have been, is still underexplored. You know, they've got one seat in Scotland at the moment. Um, this mighty force clearly became arrogant with its mightiness in Scotland, insensitive to the way it was being perceived. Um, there was this dramatic decline. Now they dare to hope in Scotland. Uh, and therefore, if um, there is a chance of Labour winning more seats in Scotland, uh, that too is good news for Keir Starmer. So there is a greater sense as we all gather for this podcast this week that Keir Starmer after the weekend's events is closer to number 10 than before and he looked pretty close before if the polls are anywhere near accurate with quite these substantial poll leads which raises a fascinating question for him. Uh, it's always a dilemma for opposition leaders how much you dare to say in advance uh, of an election um, and how much you focus just on saying everything that builds up support for that election, even if you are then impeded in power as to what you can do. Um, and it's very interesting on the whole Labour, so nervy and insecure about elections, unsurprisingly, because they lose most of them, tend towards let's utter, when it looks if they might win, let's utter every word to cement that victory. Even if we are constrained in power as a result, at least we are in power. But that can also present problems. Uh, even the new Labour route to victory, which Keir Starmer is partly following, uh, partly imitating, actually, um, there were problems arising from the level of um, 
commitment and the nature of the language used in advance of the 97 election. Most obviously, the NHS. The NHS was on its knees, but Labour were committed to sticking to the public spending plans of the Conservatives, even though the Conservatives themselves, Ken Clark, the then Chancellor, has said this subsequently, had no intention of sticking to them themselves. Eye-wateringly tight, he called them. Labour committed to sticking to them, so they had to. And therefore, the improvements to the NHS were slow uh, and began really in the second term. Uh, One example of many of words uttered before an election that constrain afterwards. So what Rachel Reeves did in um, uh, announcing that Labour's borrowing plans, 28 billion a year, would not begin right away, um, is again in that category of saying things that you regard as necessary to win. I don't think in practical terms, actually, if they keep to the rest of the commitment, um, that is of any significance at all. It would have been actually irresponsible to say, right, we're going to borrow this 28 billion quid. Um, We haven't got everything ready to spend on it on day one, but we said we'd do it, so we're going to do it. Um, You you put in place the plan in detail and make sure you've got the supply chains in place, as others have said, Uh, then you can borrow. And you try and act in ways to reassure the markets that you're not crazy before you do it. So, So all of that is fine. There is, though, one... Uh, issue with it, which is this. If you look at election-winning conservative programs and their leaders, they never concede in the build-up to an election. Uh, You look at the sort of Thatcher program pre-19 79. There's a bit of a myth around that she was cautious and didn't say very much in the build-up to 79. It's not really true. She was putting the case that the state was a stifling agent. She was planning to set people free from the state. Um, There were clear hints that um, she favoured, well, it was was in the manifesto, a switch from direct tax to indirect tax, in other words, higher VAT and all the rest of it. Quite a lot was there. And even when it appeared that some of the things the Labour government were doing in the late 70s, admittedly, in a wider context of nightmarish chaos, was starting to take effect, she didn't change her tune at all. And even when there were many economists warning before she came to power that her monetarist plans, uh, although not fully spelt out in advance, uh, would cause more trouble than they addressed, she kept going um, and uh, never conceded a millimeter on the principles of what she was doing. Cameron and Osborne, after the 2008 crash, they went back to their comfort zone of Thatcherism. They were the only duo from a mainstream party in the Western world, actually, who advocated real-term spending cuts as a response to that financial crisis. Even George Bush in America was uh, up for spending to stimulate the economy. Even the ultra-cautious Merkel was won round by Gordon Brown and so on. They were calling for that. And even when it became clear that the fiscal stimulus did save a whole range of economies, including Britain's, from going straight over the cliff's edge, they stuck to their argument. They didn't concede a millimetre And of course, then sort of won in 2010, hung parliament. 
um, Labour have, in what Rachel Reeves did, conceded part of an argument. Uh, she has accepted that borrowing to invest in big capital projects can be risky. And in making that concession, although I can see fully why she did it and how I have complete sympathy for her as she navigates, we've talked about it many times on here, the bonkers tax and spend debate in the build-up to an election. She has done something, therefore, which is understandable and in practical terms, okay. Um, but in being cautious, she's taken a risk. She has conceded ground on a principle. And therefore, when she announces whatever she does announce, even if it's uh, 10p they're going to raise to invest uh, on capital projects, they're going to borrow 10p, um, all hell will break loose because she has given uh, some ammunition for the distorting opponents to erupt. So, oh, look, this is utterly, she, she admitted it was risky to borrow. Now she's still borrowing, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So if you concede ground, it's risky. And the other worrying thing is if you concede now in a position of dreamlike strength in the opinion polls, uh, what are you going to do in power? There is, I know Gordon Brown has said to Rachel Reeves and Tony Blair has said in a slightly different way, uh, once you're in power, there is more you can do. And New Labour, to some extent, showed that that was the case, although I gave you one example of a constraint on them in the first term, the NHS. But the pressures continue um, on a, a government and in, in many ways become more intense because you are in power. You can be blamed when things go wrong um, and they will have the newspapers after them very quickly. They'll get a honeymoon with this feverish uh, Tory media, um, but then they will turn. And you've got to be strong and robust and stick to what you believe in and put the case. And one of the things that had been lacking in this green recovery package is that last bit. For the last two years since it was announced, Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves and others every day of each year should have been putting the case broadly for borrowing to invest. Point to what happened. I know interest rates are much higher now, but in 2010, it remains a scandal when interest rates for governments were ridiculously low. George Osborne decided to cut capital spending. They all say now they should have borrowed more to invest too late. But this is the way you build up an argument that makes it invincible by the time of an election. But they're not great political teachers. And that's what they should have been doing in recent times. Uh, it's too late now. We're in the kind of build-up to the election almost. But it does mean that anything in that area becomes vulnerable. And there needs to be, I think, and Keir Starmer needs to almost go away and work out, right, he's got hopes in Scotland that he didn't think he had. Johnson's gone, the, the, the one Tory who appealed to the Red Wall, and gone in a state of feverish anger and disrepute. Um, the polls are looking good. So what can I say that doesn't block the route to power, but gives me more space when I'm there in relation to a whole range of things?
from Brexit to the NHS and obviously this green recovery package, which is meant to be driving economic growth. So if you delay it, are you delaying economic growth? Um, so it's complicated, the uh, Rachel Reeves uh, move last week. Wholly understandable, in practical terms, insignificant. Uh, but in conceding ground, you quite often take risks. And, uh, you know, I know the problems with the media in this tax and spend debate, but there we go. Well, look, what a uh, lot to cram in. How long have I been going for? Oh, yeah, yeah. You'll have all done your uh, running and bread making. And some of you would have enjoyed at least two whiskeys and needed them as we reflected on some of this stuff. Um, so I think it's time to return to your questions. Uh, and for those of you or points, those of you who want to join in the never-ending discussion uh, within the Rock and Roll Politics uh, Cooperative, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. Um, and what I'm going to do also uh, before I go to the questions is to thank some more Patreon subscribers because if I wait till the end, I'm so absorbed by your questions, I might forget. So thank you uh, to some more uh, Patreon subscribers, Linda Morgan, John McIntosh, Ben Heath, Stephen Jordan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, no, it's, 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 it's brilliant. It's why I'm sitting in this uh, posh studio with uh, Pogmasters. And now over to some of your points. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is from, oh yeah, talk about baking, Helen Gordon, the baker. Uh, I was moved to write having heard you on the week in Westminster regarding uh, Boris Johnson. Yeah, I did a live program. The, 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 someone had done a pre-recorded program. The whole thing had to be junked. And we all rushed in to do a live program where we delved deep. And you can still hear it on BBC Sounds. Also, did something on Broadcasting House on Sunday morning where we looked at that uh, Johnson statement. I did it with uh, the great Samuel Shah. And Paddy played each element of the statement. We did the whole Johnson statement to dissected each element. Uh, that's all on uh, BBC Sounds. Anyway, Helen says, <laughs> well, yeah, this is a problem, Helen. I've just been going on about him for ages. But can I ask nicely now that everyone in the media stops talking about him, please? He only has a profile because journalists insist on providing him with publicity. And he's such a useless charlatan that depriving him of publicity will cause him to disappear from view. He's literally broken the country through Brexit and his mishandling of the pandemic as he partied 
while people died. The only question we should ask now is how he was enabled to get into power in the first place in order to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Well, Helen raises another point which we need to explore at some point because I say I think when we've read this select committee report, it will be damning uh, and it will be serious. These aren't people who are just doing this to be part of show business. Um, and I think the COVID inquiry will be pretty damning too. And uh, Brexit... I heard an interview with Philip Hammond, the former chancellor the other day, who was saying uh, he's absolutely 100% convinced Johnson never read the protocol. Um, I'm pretty convinced he didn't read the full Brexit deal that was done on Christmas Eve uh, with Lord Frosty Frost. God, isn't it? We haven't mentioned him recently. Frosty Frost's a bit more exposed now, don't you think? Um, his mentor has been so exposed, but there is Frosty Frost still pontificating as if he's a genius. Um, so you raise a key question. I think you're also right, uh, Helen, that part of the kind of Johnson focus is is, is just the media. Um, and I say it's quite hard to extract what is significant. John Burt, the former D director general of the BBC, used to say brilliantly at the BBC, when you come to deciding what's in a news bulletin, you need to ask, is this significant? And if it is significant, what is its significance? And with all the noise around Johnson, I think those are the key questions, uh, rather than just giving him another ego trip when, you know, actually he's been humiliatingly forced from the comments as well as from number 10. Uh, thanks, Helen. Keep baking. Um, Dorothy Aitken has written and said, in the history of our prime ministers, is Boris Johnson the worst, having split his party, trashed the country, lied ad infinitum, and having produced the most egregious uh, resignation letter. Um, I've just finished reading Douglas Hurd's excellent biography of Robert Peel, a man who split the Tory party. Uh, I found Peel an admirable man. Uh, he made decisions rationally, when he U-turned on Ireland and Corn Laws, he did so because he felt it was the right thing to do for the country. Johnson is not in that league. To find anyone on a par with Johnson, would we have to go to the classical world or some other country in the world? Um, oh, yeah. Doris said, I've just moved from Scotland to Liverpool. Last year, I went to one of your Edinburgh shows. And I can assure everybody that it was definitely worth the visit. Oh, yeah, great. Now I need you to come down to Liverpool. Um, yeah, well, thank you for the plug for Edinburgh, Dorothy. I will come to Liverpool, but you must come up to Edinburgh again this summer. Um, and um, yeah, I, it's interesting. It's like comparing, you're absolutely right. And by the way, the Douglas Heard book on Robert Peel is a really good read. Um, and Peel is, is fascinating and he's a figure of depth. And he did split the party, as Dorothy says, over corn laws. It's that classic thing. It's a constant divide in British politics, protectionism versus free trade. And the corn laws that split the Tory party. But Peel thought deeply about what he was doing and why he was doing it. He had already been a substantial reformer by the time of the political crisis arising from the Corn Laws. And he's, you know, the idea of Peel not reading the Irish Protocol is inconceivable. Um, so, no, Johnson, I think, is the worst. Um, and and, and it, it was Britain's great misfortune, although not entirely down to luck, I mean, they did vote for him, um, and the Tory party did elect him. 
that, that Johnson was prime minister at the junction of so many seismic events, Brexit and the pandemic specifically. Dorothy says, oh, what's your next book about? It's, oh, yeah, thank you for asking, Dorothy. It's about 10 turning points in modern Britain since 19. 19- 45. Uh, coming out, I hope, in September. I'll talk a bit more about it another time, if that's okay. So you can make it up from Liverpool, uh, Dorothy, to Edinburgh. Uh, John from Manchester, love the podcast. Does Johnson's resignation synchronise with Nadine Doris's? Suggest he's planning to slide over to her seat with a much larger majority than Uxbridge. No, John, I don't think even he would have the chutzpah to resign in this context and an attempt, an immediate return in a by-election. Also, I don't think he'd have the courage. I think he'd be worried he could lose that one, um, even though that's got a huge majority. Uh, OK, let's move on to something else. Uh, our uh, The cooperative's white van man driver, Andy, uh, who always, I like the way he does a bit of research uh, for uh, the benefit of the cooperative. Um, Anyway, he he looked at a Daily Telegraph splash the other day with the headline, lockdown, it was the big, big front page headline, lockdown benefits a drop in the bucket compared with the costs. Of course, the Telegraph is now running a kind of frenetic anti-lockdown campaign that began with the Isabel Oakshot, Matt Hancock, WhatsApps, etc. Anyway, Andy never takes the uh, media at face value. He delves deep. And he discovered that the front page splash was based solely around a press release from the Institute of Economic Affairs, the right wing think tank that, um, of course, Truss was famously uh, a, a part of in, in her own wild way. Um, and he makes the point, it's not news, it's an agenda-driven opinion piece. And although most of us in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative will know exactly how this comes to pass, millions who read this stuff every day don't, and the cumulative effect is as dangerous and damaging as poison dripped into the ear. Yeah, I, 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 I completely. And you, so you're, you're right, most people don't know. And, and, and you, even if you just glance the front page in a news agent's shop, and you don't buy the paper, it sort of seeps through and um, makes it very powerful. Now, Rob Watson, bit of an AI expert, he looked at, uh, we did an interview, I don't know if, if you heard it with about um, uh, social care. The Fabian Society uh, has put out proposals. They work with Labour to some extent on the proposals for a national care plan. I interviewed Andy Harrop, the General Secretary of the Fabian Society, about it. Anyway, Rob put <laughs> the uh, social care proposals through AI to see what it would come up with. And um, I haven't got time to read it out, but it's a sort of tonally interesting. Anyway, Rob Watson also uh, put the Rock and Roll Politics podcast through the uh, AI thing. You know that website, I've forgotten which one it's called, where you can do it. And this is what um, they came up with. You see, this is what we would get if I ceased to be human and became AI. Welcome back to Rock and Roll Politics podcast with me, Steve Richards, where we're spinning the records of the political world and getting down to the grooves of policy debates. Today, we're talking about a real golden oldie, the contributory principle, and how it might remix the future of social care policy in the UK. That's brilliant, actually, isn't it? I'll get loads of uh, 
be able to teach teenagers the national care plan with this, uh, yeah, getting down to the grooves of policy debates with rock and roll politics. Rob, thank you. That's alarming and, and illuminating at the same time. Uh, Andrew uh, Kitching writes, really enjoying the podcast and the build up to the general election. Yeah, it's the build up is start. You can feel it. Um, and But there's a long way to go. And uh, Andrew also said the latest on social care is particularly interesting. Rachel Reeves had to endure another torrid where's the money going to come from grilling on the Today programme about the green recovery package, which I've been talking about. And the commentators uh, in the papers are constantly agitating about fiscal policy. Uh, yeah, the, the, they're going to get it the whole time. Um, where's that halfpenny going to come from? There's a black hole here, according to government figures. You know, there would be this amount to spend, and you've got a black hole there, and all the rest of it. Yeah, Andrew suggests getting Paul Johnson from the IFS on, or Nick McPherson, the former Treasury Permanent Secretary, to sort of guide us through this kitty being empty stuff. Good idea, Andrew. I will. I will do it. Um, Alison Keys uh, is disturbed. Uh, and by the way, there are quite a few people at the top of the Labour Party across the spectrum who are not wholly at ease with some of the Starmer entourage, uh, you know, from the so-called right of the Labour Party, the hard right of the Labour Party, who are as hard as the hard left of the Labour Party, uh, you know, blocking people from long lists and blocking that mayor in the northeast from being on the uh, list for the next candidacy and so on. Alison Key says, I think a lot of people are going to see polls saying Labour are a shoe in and just stay home rather than vote for them because of this kind of stuff. Or vote Lib Dem or Green. And I think it's dangerous for the hopes of getting rid of the Tories. Yeah, it's, it's one of the very interesting uh, kind of themes is is the hunger, this is another thing, calculation that Keir Starmer has to make, is the hunger for getting rid of the Tories so great that uh, the, the, the move towards Labour will be inevitable and therefore he cannot, he doesn't have to say very much uh, to hint even at reassurances to people who think Brexit is a disaster because they're all going to vote Labour anyway, because if they think it's a disaster, they're not going to endorse the Tories and so on. And it's that thing Tony Blair used to say sometimes at Labour conferences, look, you might not like what we're doing, right? But you don't want the Tories in, do you? See, you know, it's that kind of thing. Um, whereas now the choice is greater, of course. SNP in Scotland, well, certainly as was, uh, was one hell of a choice. They were winning everything. Uh, Lib Dems appear to be recovering in parts of the country. You say the Greens did well in the local elections. So in totally working on the assumption that so-called, I don't know, how, how can we put them, um, those a millimetre to the left of Tony Blair onwards have nowhere else to go. They want the Tories out, so they're going to vote Labour. There are other choices, and um, uh, that does need to be a part of a Labour leader's thinking, um, as he it will be he, because he will be leading Labour into the election, uh, makes his moves. But we've done a lot on that in relation to the uh, Green Recovery Programme and Rachel Reeves. Well, there we are, a lot crammed in in our time together and well, all the things we've been reflecting on 
will be having consequences galore throughout the next few days. So I reckon pretty soon we need to gather again. And we've got a great interview as well um, at the end of the week. So do watch out for that. Best way of knowing you're going to get it is to subscribe. Um, then it arrives automatically. And if you don't mind, if you could just spend 10 seconds leaving a review, that's great because only if you like it, of course, because that gets us up the charts. And the blurb for the Edinburgh Festival and Patreon will be on this uh, podcast, you know, the blurb for the podcast. Thank you so much. Enjoy the sunshine amidst all the political dramas. See you soon. Bye.